I was uh, an assistant pastor on a pastoral staff for about nine years in South Carolina, Taylor, South Carolina. And one of the things I really loved, I mean, there are a lot of things to love about pastoral ministry and some things that are hard. But one of the things I really loved was admitting new members to the church and hearing their testimony of salvation and hearing all the different ways that God saves people and brings them to his self. I love hearing testimonies. And I love reading about Jesus Christ working with individuals in the Gospels to bring them to himself. You know, and if this were, if we had time and this were a class, I would have you tell me some of these stories. But you can think of them, right? Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman and blind Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus and on it goes. My favorite of those stories is here in Mark chapter five. And in some ways, it's the strangest of those stories. It's a story that on the surface appears so different from our normal experience. That is, I heard a lot of testimonies over those nine years, and I've heard a lot of testimonies in other settings. I've never heard anybody who had thousands of demons in him and had been driven out of their community and chained and lived in tombs and never heard that testimony. And so this seems like a very unusual testimony. As we go through these verses this evening, I believe we're going to see four features of this man's testimony that everybody who comes to Christ can also share in. And those four things are that whenever somebody gets saved, there is a divine appointment. There is a divine confrontation. There is a divine transformation. And there is a divine assignment. And what I want you to do this evening, as we are looking at those four things, and it is dangerous for preachers to tell people how many points they have, but there it is. That's the sermon. As we look at those four things in the life of this man, I want you to recount those four things in your own life and experience. What did that appointment look like for you? What did that confrontation look like for you? What is that transformation looking like for you? How are you doing with the assignment? Let's pray together and we'll consider Mark 5 together. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful assembly. Lord, the singing alone was such a blessing. Thank you for a pastor and his wife and just the encouragement to Jamie and me to get to know them a little bit. Thank you for Brother Olala. And those years of experience and the testimony that he can share and the wisdom that we can learn from. And thank you, Lord, for every single trophy of grace who has a story to tell. And I pray that as we consider this trophy, this man that you rescued from such a dire situation, I pray that we would be able to rejoice in our own salvation and be encouraged, burdened even more to share it with others. And I pray for your hand of blessing now in the next few minutes, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's consider first this divine appointment. This passage comes in a context. In fact, if you look at verse 1, it says, and they came over to the other side of the sea, which means the chapter picks up and they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Chapter 4 is a long chapter about Jesus' teachings. And he has been busy teaching. The, the key part of that teaching is the parable of the sower, where a sower went forth to sow and spread seed on a variety of soils. And there are a variety of responses. And Jesus Christ is describing his own ministry as well as the ministry of everyone who shares the gospel. And then he and the apostles got to get away from the crowds as they often did. And they climb on board a boat and they start sailing across this nine by 13 mile sea, the Sea of Galilee. It's really a lake, but a pretty good sized lake. And a squall blows up there at the end of chapter 4. And it's not our text, but there is a great storm of wind. And you've probably heard that these happen on the Sea of Galilee. Because of the mountains that kind of rim it to the north, 
storms come that are like Atlantic ferocity. I mean, you don't expect it on a small lake like that, but it can get pretty severe. And the disciples wake up the Lord who's sleeping and say, Master, do you not care that we're going to perish? And Christ says to them, well, first, He calms the storm. And then He says, Spurgeon comments in his commentary on Matthew, that Christ does the easy thing first. He stills the storm, and then He deals with the disciples. And He says to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And I think it's important for us, going into chapter 5, to understand what He's rebuking. These men... A number of them, over half of them, are professional fishermen. They've had relatives go down in the Sea of Galilee. They've barely survived some of these storms. They have every reason to be fearful. Except that the Messiah is not going to go down in a boating accident. That is, they might drown in the Sea of Galilee. He's not going to. He's not rebuking them because they're afraid of a storm. It makes perfectly good sense to be afraid of a storm. He's rebuking them because they still don't know who He is. They need to recognize who is with them and who is in the boat. Every story in the Gospels is getting us ready for a man to carry a cross up a hill and we find out who this is who's dying for us. And that's what chapter 5 is going to do as well. And so they come over to the other side. Now, it's got to be kind of late. He's been teaching all day long. In fact, they don't even begin to sail away until evening is upon them, which means by the time they get across the, the sea in a storm, it's nighttime. It's dark. Uh, remember that. Because this is the... Uh, they, they, they blow up on an unfamiliar shore. It's kind of stormy. This is the only time we read about them blowing up on this part of the shore. They cross the sea regularly to get away and pray. And sometimes the crowds would follow them all the way around. But they, they tried to get away. This time, they're in the southeastern corner of the lake. In fact, the archaeologists think they know exactly where this is. There's a city about six miles inland, which they believe was the ancient city of Gadara. There are tombs about two miles inland, which this guy lived in. And there's a long slope that goes right down into the sea right here. The pigs could have gone, you know, diving off of. So it all fits. And they blow up on this particular place. It is a place which is dominated by Gentiles. In fact, just off the Sea of Galilee over on that side were ten cities known as the Decapolis. And the majority of the people living there were Gentiles. That's why they have this huge herd of pigs they're managing. You know the Jews are not supposed to eat pork. Now I've always been I've always kind of wondered how much pork is being slid under the table, you know, by these Gentiles finding a market there, but but this is a Gentile area. And Christ didn't usually go to Gentiles. When he does, it's almost always on purpose. He must needs go through Samaria. Because there's this woman and a bunch of people in Sychar that he's gonna win. Now they're not exactly Gentiles, but sort of half. He, he goes all the way to Sidon, three weeks to the north. Why? Because there's this woman with a daughter up there that he's going to minister. That is, he seeks out Gentiles. He's come to seek and to save those that are lost. And when this boat blows up in the shore, we find that there's a guy there. When he was come out of the ship, when he was come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Immediately. They blow up on the shore. There's a beach. There's a tree line. And there's a guy, and he's running towards them. What brought him to the beach that night? We're told that he lived two, two miles inland. What brought him to the beach that night? The demons did not bring him to Jesus. Jesus brought him to Jesus. Jesus has gone seeking somebody. And what I'm going to do for each of my four points, uh, church history guy, is I'm going to tell you a, t- a salvation testimony that I think illustrates it. There's a man by the name of H.W. Webb Peplow. William Hanmer Webb Peplow. Hanmer William. 
Webb Peplow. He was a British guy, early 19th century, and he grew up um, in a sort of nominal Christian home, and he decided he didn't want anything to do with it. He decided he would go off to Cambridge and experience the world and then make his decision about his worldview. I'm, they wouldn't have said worldview, but I'm not going to pick my religion now. I'm going to experience the world first. And there was a wealthy young man who invited him to have dinner at his manor house the day before he was to leave for Cambridge. And what he didn't realize with this young man was a zealous Christian. And all through dinner, the guy preached to him. Listen, if you go off to Cambridge, you're going to get caught up in the world and you're going to abandon Christ. You need to get saved. And Webb Peplow was really angry. I mean, you invite me over for dinner and you preach at me. And so he wasn't even civil to the guy. He went to bed. He got up real early in the morning, snuck out of the house without even saying goodbye. Because he was just upset with this guy for preaching at him. And he makes his way towards his tutor. The way Cambridge worked at the time was they would assign you a tutor and you would spend a few days getting sort of like freshman orientation before you'd be introduced to the school. The tutor actually lived in kind of a farming area. Well, it was too early in the morning to go there. So he's trying to find somewhere to to kill some time. Well, they were running early morning races. I don't know if horses, dogs, I don't know what they're running, but they had races going. He says it's the only time in his whole life he went to the racetrack. And he shows up at the racetrack and the gates are shut because they're running right at the moment. And so he's just milling around with some other people waiting for the gates to open. And a teenager walks up to him, a couple years younger than he was. And he holds out a piece of paper and says, sir, would you read this? Well, he thought the guy was illiterate and he thought he'd help him out. So he takes a piece of paper out of his hands and says, reader, if you died tonight, will your soul be in hell? And he, <laughs> and he throws a piece of paper down and he, t- and he just, he said he, he ran the next six miles towards his tutor's house. He gets there and as, as day is dawning, some of the servants meet him and say, oh, you're the new Cambridge student. Listen, a couple of lots over, there's this young farmer who's just moved into the area and he's like a zealous Christian and he's just, he's talking Jesus to everybody. You might want to avoid him. He said, thank you. About two days later, he was walking through a turnstile between the two farms and this guy is right there in front of him and says, you're the new Cambridge student. And I said, yeah. He says, we're having a Bible study this afternoon at three o'clock. You need to be there. And Webb Peplow in his testimony says, I will never know why I went to that Bible study. But it's like heaven had sicked the hounds on me three times in the last 72 hours, and I couldn't say no. And I went there, and I got saved. I went there, and I got saved. And years, years later, he was one of the leading British Baptists. He wasn't Baptist, but one of the leading British pastors. In fact, he wrote that testimony for a volume called The Fundamentals. And you can look at that testimony and read it. What were the circumstances in which you got saved? They weren't accidental. They weren't chance. You didn't just happen to make a good decision and somebody else made a good decision. And No. No. Nobody gets saved by accident. An appointment is kept. And this man is on this beach on this night and it's going to be the most important night of his life. And here he is running towards Christ. And I bet the apostles were like, what are we doing here? I mean, Luke tells us the man was naked. He was dragging broken chains. He's probably got hair everywhere. He's been cutting himself and he's running towards them. And, and I can imagine probably Thomas, uh, Lord, do you want to, can we move to another beach? <laughs> I mean, there, there's a lot of beach here. You know, we No, this is the place. And here he comes. He's demon possessed. Luke tells us that he had lived in the town in Gadara and he was frightening people. He was scaring people. He was dangerous. So what did they do for him? They chained him. That is, this world had no solution for his problem. And they didn't love him. They just wanted to control him. 
They just didn't want to be hurt by him. And he broke the chains. Now, I don't know what it takes to break chains, but that's exactly what the scriptures say. He would break the chains. Verse four, he had often been bound with fetters and chains and the chains had been plucked asunder by him and the fetters broken in pieces. I, that's scary. And he moved into the tombs and he's living in graves and he is crying out. Is he crying out in pain? Probably. Is he crying out to scare people? Probably. Is he crying for help? Probably. But he's living a horrible life. He cut himself because the demons like people to harm themselves. The demons love self-harm. Demons don't care about people. Everyone is against this man. What hope does he have? Let's continue our reading. Verse 5, Always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out, literally. Crying there doesn't mean weeping. It means screaming. Cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus afar off, He ran off to the tombs to get away. That's not what happened. He ran towards him and threw himself on his knees before him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For Jesus had said unto him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. So, here's the sequence. The man is running towards Christ and Christ confronts the demon. Come out of him! And the deacon, the demon, not the deacon, sometimes the two can, you know. The demon says, I adjure thee by God. He's not an atheist. None of the demons are atheists. He's swearing by God's name. Don't hurt me! Don't hurt me! I love that. How many demons are in this man? Well, we're going to read shortly that his name is Legion. There are thousands of demons in this man. And they're confronted by one solitary prophet standing on a beach. And these thousands of demons say, please, don't hurt us. I like to use this passage when I talk to Jehovah's Witnesses. Don't tell me Jesus is a creature. He is a king. He is God. And they say, what have I to do with thee? Now, that's an unusual expression. We find that expression twice in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 16.10, 2 Samuel 19.22. Both times, uh, Abishai... The brother of Joab, uh, on one occasion, Shimei, as David is fleeing Absalom, is, is throwing rocks and dust. And Abishai, who I kind of like, says, hey, let me go over and take that guy's head off. And Jesus says, what? I'm sorry. David says, what have I to do with thee, you son of Zeruiah? In other words, you and I have nothing in common. Our goals are totally opposite from one another. And this, these demons see Jesus. And they know that what he wants for this man is the complete opposite of what they want for this man. There's a a tug of war here, but it's not an even contest. Even though, he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. There were between 6,000 and 6,600 Roman troops in a legion. I don't know if we should be that literal with this. But there's a bunch of demons in this guy. There's a bunch of demons in this guy. We don't read anywhere else in the New Testament of thousands of demons taking over somebody. And they start begging. Verse 10. And he besought him. Legion besought Christ. Begged Christ much. Please. That they would send them out of the country. I think this is an important part of this text. In Luke. I I really love the Markan account. But the Lucan account. They beg him. Do not send us into the deep. Or into the abyss. That Greek word abyss. 
only occurs two other times in the New Testament. And both of them are in the book of Revelation. One of them is when one of the seal judgments is broken, demons are released out of the abyss. Trumpet judgment, sorry. But they're released out of the abyss. And then in chapter 20, Satan is bound in the abyss for a thousand years. And these demons know that if Jesus wants to, he can speak the word and they will be sent to the abyss to await final judgment. And so they ask for an alternative. And it's an interesting alternative. Verse 11. There was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. Well, I'll say there are about 2,000 pigs here. I consider that a big herd of swine. And they say, can we go into the pigs? Now, the text does not tell us why the demons wanted to go into the pigs. So we have to do a little theology. And whenever we do theology, we could be wrong. Here's what I think is going on here. These demons, they know the Gadarenes. They know them well. Why do Gadarenes have nice chariots and nice homes and are living the Gadarene dream? Because of those pigs. That is, they're, they're, they're doing all right. And so they want these demons... They, they know they're going to lose this guy. You know, Christ has got him in his sights. But what about the Gadarenes? We can keep them if we kill their pigs. Because then they've got to choose. Pigs or Jesus. The reason I argue for this is that when you come down to uh, verse 14, they that fed the swine fled, told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that was done. And notice, and they come to Jesus, and they see him that was possessed with the demon. All right, that's one thing they see. Verse 16, and they that saw it told them what happened to the pigs. And they've got to choose. They've got to choose. When the appointment comes, there will always be a confrontation. There will always be a confrontation. Why is there a confrontation? Because the Lord makes appointments with sinners. We come to Christ as sinners. We come to Christ as rebels. And therefore, we must lay down our arms. We must repent and embrace the gospel to be saved. There is no salvation with our sins. We are saved from our sins. Now, this man, these demons figure, if we can get the gatherings. Now, you're going to ask me, but, but Brother David... Why, if uh, surely the Lord knew what these guys were, what these demons are asking, why did he let them have the pigs? Because what are the demons going to do to the pigs? Kill them. Kill them. Wipe out the whole herd. Destroy the Gadarene economy. Because Jesus Christ will have the Gadarenes without their pigs or not at all. That is, they're not going to hold on to their idols and have Christ. He's perfectly willing for their pigs to die, and then they must choose Christ or the Gadarene way of life. I have a good friend. Uh, who grew up in a nominal Catholic home. You know, they, they went to church Easter, Christmas, that sort of thing. And when he got to be a teenager, many, many years ago, he decided that, you know what, I don't need Christianity at all, the nominal kind or any other kind. And he went off to a major university to study humanities, and uh, he was doing fine. I mean, he didn't, he, he didn't do much drugs, and he didn't do much alcohol, because he kind of wanted to have a clear mind for his studies. He did have a mistress, but he was faithful to her, so he thought he was a pretty good guy. And he was kind of a live-and-let-live guy. You have your crutches. You want to believe your beliefs. Go for it. I have mine. We can all get along. And a campus ministry came by his dorm room one day and said, Hey, can we come in and read the Bible to you? If you have his principles and you got time, it's hard to say no. Because, you know, why can't we all get along? So we invited him in, and they read the Bible. And he said, Hey, that sounds nice. Those are, those are good stories. Thank you very much. And... Uh, See you later. Now, I don't know if you've ever witnessed somebody like that, but that's like the most frustrating thing ever. We kind of want people to fight back. We want people to argue with us and to disagree with us. And this guy was like, ah, that sounds great. Thank you, guys. 
And one of those men who knocked on his door said, hey, uh, mind if I come back next week? And my friend said, yeah, whatever, yeah, it'd be fine. And so he came back the next week and my friend would invite him into his room and he'd read the Bible. And sometimes my friend was doing homework and sometimes he was on the phone, but the, guy, he, the person would read the Bible to him. And then he said, you mind if I come back next week? And he came back the next week and the next week and the next week. And what my friend didn't know was that he had allowed a lion loose in his apartment. And the scriptures were confronting him week after week after week after week. And one day, months after months of this one guy just going back every Thursday night and saying, hey, let me read the scriptures to you. One day, my friend invited him in and he sat down and he, and he read a text. My friend later couldn't even remember what the text was. And then he said, hey, thanks. Good night. See you later. And then he sat down and tried to do homework. And all he could think of was, I think it's true. I think, I think the Bible's true. I think God became man and died on a cross for me. I think if I don't believe in him, I'll go to hell forever. And if I do believe in him, I'll go to heaven forever. I, 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 I think it's true. He said, and then I proceeded to cry all night because I didn't want to give up my mistress and give up my way of life and give up my easy. I mean, I liked, what, I liked my life, but it's true. And if it's true, I, I, I think I have to surrender. And in the morning, he asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into his heart and save him. And uh, to this day, he is a professor at a Bible college serving the Lord. Uh, when were you confronted? Who were you when you were confronted compared to who you are now? Because when the appointment occurs, a confrontation occurs. And now let's pick up in our text. I love verse 15. And they come to Jesus. They come to Jesus. The townspeople have heard what's happening, and they come to Jesus. Now, you'll, I'm reading from the King James. Most modern translations will not reflect this. Narrative in the original language is almost always in the past tense. That's what we do, too. I say, I went to the mall and I was having a conversation and I stopped at this store and then I bought a pair of pants. We tell our stories in the past tense. And then every so often in the New Testament, there will be a shift where you've got a new speaker or a new situation and it shifts to the present tense. Some of the writers like uh, Luke do this all the time. Mark only does it one time in these 20 verses and it's right here. It would be like, I went to the mall and I bought a shirt and then I see Mike and I say, how are you doing, Mike? And you see what happened there? I changed him to the present tense because now you're there with me seeing Mike. It becomes more vivid. And this verse then stands out of these 20 verses as the one verse where we are right there. And they come to Jesus and they see him that was possessed with the demons. Hey, we remember that guy. He used to terrify us. He was the scariest guy in our entire county. And there he is. And something has happened. He had the legion, but now he's sitting. He's sitting. Back in verse 4, I didn't read it, but look at the last clause in verse 4. Neither could any man tame him. You know unbelievers don't have any solutions in this world? They go to psychiatrists, they go to doctors, and they go to therapists, and they go to all kinds of things looking for answers. And there are no answers. Because their problem, last analysis, is sin. And there's only one solution to sin. And nobody could solve this guy's problem. No one could tame him. And now they come out of the city and there he is. He's sitting still. He's been tamed. He needed something supernatural. And then it says he's clothed. Where did he get clothes? I've always pictured the Apostle John, you know, because John's the, the Apostle of love. I've always pictured John there saying, yeah, you know, he's about my size. I've got an extra pair of clothes here in the boat. Let me grab them for him. 
It would have done no good to dress this man while he was possessed with a demon and screaming and killing people. You can't fix the outside and solve the problem. But once God changes someone on the inside, what does it affect? Everything. He doesn't want to run around naked anymore. Now he wants to dress right and he wants to talk right. And it's going to be years before he's doing. In fact, he's going to die still not doing everything right. But transformation has begun that very moment it begins. Everyone who comes to Christ, everyone who has a meeting with Christ, the appointment is met, the confrontation when they repent and believe transformation. And that transformation is expressed in a third beautiful expression. He's sitting, he's clothed and he's in his right mind. He's in his right mind. You say, well, of course, he wasn't in his right mind before he was dominated by demons. He has not been in his right mind since he was conceived by his mother and father. Unbelievers cannot think properly apart from the illuminating work of God himself. God is the one who enables us to think rightly. And this man has never been in his right mind. That word occurs in the Gospels in this story. When you go into the epistles, you find four uses, three by Paul and one by Peter. And it's usually translated sober, sober minded. That is controlled thinking. Unbelievers look at us and say, you're just brainwashed. And we say, amen, our brains have been washed. We can think rightly now. We can view everything now in the clear light of God's truth. And before we were saved, it was all blurry. It was all distorted by sin. This man has been transformed. John Calvin writes, though we are not tortured by the devil, yet he holds us as his slaves. Till the Son of God delivers us from His tyranny. Naked, torn, and disfigured, we wander about till He restores us to soundness of mind. There was a man by the name of uh, Benjamin Keach who pastored in London. Arguably the greatest Baptist theologian of the 17th century. Wonderful pastor. Very famous by the late 17th century. And he had a son named Elias. And when Elias was about 19, he said, I am sick of living in the fishbowl. I am sick of being a PK. I am sick of everybody knowing what I do day in and day out. I'm getting out of here and go live my own life. And he saved up enough money to book passage across the Atlantic, sailed to New York, crossed the Raritan Valley, got into the Philadelphia area. I'm going to be free of the Keech name. And he meets some Scotch-Irish settlers in the area uh, near Philadelphia. And they're Baptists. And when he meets them, they say, so what's your name? And he makes, a, he makes a, a terrible mistake. He says, I'm Elias Keach. Because he didn't think they'd know his name. And they said, are you the son of the great Benjamin Keach? He goes, ha, I've crossed an ocean and I can't get away from it. He said, yeah, yeah, that would, that, that's my dad. And they said, well, we need a pastor. Would you be willing to pastor our little congregation here? You know, there are lots of little assemblies around here with no pastors. Would you help us out? And Elias Keach, by the way, we have the story of very good authority. Elias Keach says, yeah, why not? Why not? I know bunches of my dad's sermons. I've heard them and heard them and heard them. Yeah, I could do this. I don't have anything else to do. And so we're told that he, he donned clerical robes and he starts preaching to these people. Well, that was a mistake because he's handling the word of God, not just hearing it, but expressing it. And we're told that one day he's in the middle of one of his sermons and he starts shaking violently. They thought he was having a seizure. And then he starts weeping. And the people said, Pastor, Pastor, what's the matter? And he says, I'm not your pastor. I'm not, a, I'm not even a believer. I, I've been faking it this whole time. I'm an imposter. And then the historian says, and he dated his conversion to that hour. Which means he got saved in the middle of his own sermon. He went on and received some training from a pastor in northern Pennsylvania. He pastored that church. 
Uh, it's the oldest surviving Baptist church in Pennsylvania to this day. It's in a suburb of Philadelphia and four other churches in the area. Uh, it was they were Baptist churches. He got in a fight with the deacons five years later and left, went back to England. Back in London, he was pastoring a church of nearly a thousand. And then he got tuberculosis and died at the age of 34. But there was a transformation. Can you imagine the reconciliation when he got home to dad? Because he was transformed by the gospel. Well, let's finish our text. Because these gatherings are going to make a terrible decision. After they saw this man who had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, it scared him to death. It scared him to death. What kind of power could do this? Should we let that kind of power in our lives? It seems like if you let this person in your life, he changes you. We don't want to change. We kind of like how we are. They're frightened. And it says, They that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil, and also concerning the swine. There it is. There's the choice. Swine, transformation. And they choose the swine. They choose their old life. And they began to pray him, to beg him to depart out of their coast. We do not want somebody who will cost us our way of life. We do not want someone who demands everything. We do not want someone who will own us, lock, stock, and barrel. We do not want a Lord. And they rejected Christ. I'm happy to tell you, though, that there was a transformed man on that beach. And when he, Christ, was coming to the boat, he that had possessed with the devil prayed him. Same word. They began to beg him to leave. And he began to beg him that he might be with him. Do you remember when you got saved, how suddenly you wanted to be with him? You wanted to be in the Scriptures because that's where Christ is. You wanted to be at church because that's where Christ is. You wanted to be in prayer because that's where Christ is. You wanted to be with Him. You begged Him if you could be with Him. That's the surest sign that somebody's been transformed. And this guy says, Lord, I just want to be with You. But Christ had an assignment for him. Howbeit, Jesus did not permit him. Instead, He said to him, Go home to thy friends. Now, the guy's got to be thinking... Uh, you mean the guys who used to chain me up? The ones who beat me with sticks, ran me out into the tombs? You mean those friends? The Gadarenes have just said no to Christ. Does Christ still love the Gadarenes? Yeah, He sure does. He sends a missionary to them. He's going to sail away, but He's not done with the Gadarenes. And He says, you go home to your friends and you tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee. How He has had compassion on you. And He did. He departed and began to publish in Decapolis. That's the ten cities. He didn't just go to Gadara. He spread the news everywhere. He couldn't stop talking about what the Lord had done for him because the Lord had shown compassion to him. He was a transformed man and that transformation became what he wanted to talk about to everyone he could. And I like his theology because the Lord Jesus says, tell them how great things the Lord, God, has done for you. And he begins to publish how great things Jesus had done for him. He's, he's got a pretty good theology right off. And all men did marvel. I know another person, one last testimony, whose mom got saved as a teenager, whose dad got saved out on the Pacific Ocean, led to the Lord by a navigator, the navigator's ministry, who, after they'd been married for about four years, he was born into their home and grew up with Christian loving care and was taken to church from infancy because his mom didn't believe in nurseries. And which, by the way, I believe in nurseries, but uh, was in church all the time and went to Christian school before it was popular and went through Christian school and never really experienced a whole lot of rebellion and uh, then went off to Bible college. He was considered a pretty nice person and, uh, and, and met a godly girl and married straight out of school 
And wow, is that a boring testimony? That, that would be me. And you know what's true of me as the little six-year-old who prayed a prayer in a Christian day school chapel? It was not an accident. It was planned from the foundation of the world. It was an assignment. It was an appointment, I mean. And as that little six-year-old praying and saying, boy, I want to go to heaven. It wasn't even a sermon on hell. It was a sermon on heaven. And I thought, you know, that would be a great place. And, and that little six-year-old, I was utterly and completely depraved. There was nothing in me to earn God's favor. There was nothing in me to benefit God in any way from saving me. And therefore, it was just pure compassion. And that day, a transformation began. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. It's lifelong. But my direction changed completely. That is, I was going that way, and suddenly I was going that way. And while it's been up and down and up and down and up and down ever since, it's always been that way. Because the transformation began. And I have had the job for the last 53 years of telling other people what great things the Lord has done for me. And I've not always done that assignment well, but it's the assignment that every believer has. How about you? Can you think of the appointment? Do you glorify God in how He brought you to Himself? Do you think of the confrontation? Did you turn from sin? How's the transformation going? And how are you doing with your assignment? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He hath redeemed out of the hand of the enemy. Every one of us can have a testimony just like this man. In fact, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have never bowed the knee to Him and accepted Him as your Savior, tonight could be the appointment. This could be the day. Neglect not the day of salvation. Because the Gadarenes chose something other than Christ. And that is a decision that dooms someone for eternity. And nothing is better than Christ. And I would urge you, if you do not know Him, to come to know Him. Pastor, Dr. Ola, pastor's wife, my wife, me, we would like nothing better than to sit down with the Word of God and show you how you can know the Lord Jesus. But for every one of us who is a believer, let us rejoice in our salvation and let us share our salvation with others. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to consider this text. Thank you for how you saved this man. I can't wait to meet this man. In fact, there were two men on the shore that day, according to Matthew, and they both got saved. Thank you for how you saved Webb Peplo. Thank you for how you saved my humanities friend. Thank you, Lord, for how you saved Elias Keach, for how you saved me. And Lord, I pray that we would never get over our salvation, that we would rejoice every day in the great things that you have done for us and had compassion on us. And I pray that it would bubble out of us to those who need to hear. And I pray if there's even one person here tonight who does not know you and is not sure they know you as their personal Savior, if they could not formulate a testimony like this man's testimony, I pray that you would work in their heart to bring them to yourself even tonight that they would repent and believe. And I pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.